We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media, and we're excited today. We've got Stephen Bailey, who is actually the founder and CEO of Exec Online. Let's jump in and get to know Stephen. Stephen, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're excited. We're delighted you're here. I want to hear all about Exec Online. You've had a tremendous career path and want to get into all that, but I'd love to get to know a little bit about you and where you were born and raised and, and tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, so to know me is to know that I, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. I would argue the most unique city in the country and also the greatest city in the country, but I understand that might be more controversial, especially <laughs> since I live in New York now. But you know, really close-knit family, two parents who were just tremendous influences on my life really helped me, you know, figure out who I was and what was important and instilled in me a set of values that pretty much, you know, kind of influence everything I do today as a as a leader, as a as a husband, as, you know, sort of throughout every aspect of my life. And also a, a fantastic sister who's two and a half years younger. I now is a neighbor of mine uh, in New York. Uh, so mm. we spend a lot of time together. And so just uh, couldn't be more fortunate in terms of uh, being from both a great city and having a great family. That's great. Stephen, such a rich sort of diverse culture there in New Orleans. And, you know, t- tell us about like the impact do you think that had on on you and your sense of culture and identity and, and tell us about how that impacted you. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about growing up in New Orleans is that it's, a, you know, at least it was before Katrina, a majority African-American city. And so, you know, I think that has a big impact on how you think about, you know, kind of your place in society. You know, it, it's very different when you live in a place where like, the majority of people look like you. At the same time, you also recognize, you know, you know anything about New Orleans as well. You also know that, you know, it has had significant issues of inequality, you know, and, and you start to see people who look like you, but a disproportionate number of those people in really tough economic circumstances. And for most of the country, that became, you know, more apparent with Katrina, but it's something that I lived with, you know, sort of growing up. And so, you know, there's a part of me that was always kind of influenced by that and, you know, kind of recognizing that as a black man, you have an obligation and a larger purpose. And that's something that my parents instilled and not everybody kind of views the world that way, but that was something that was important to me. And then just on a lighter note, I mean, New Orleans is just a place where people will say hi to you walking down the street. We're always looking for a good time and for, you know, sort of a, a, a great meal you know, at one meal and you're talking about what you're going to have at the next meal, uh, you know, that's the type of city it is. So there's definitely the, the fun side of me, the people side of me was heavily influenced by growing up in the world. Now, I do have to ask you on, to that point, when you moved to New York, was there a little bit of a culture shock there? Because New Yorkers are a little bit more on edge. And, you know, <laughs> say hi to a New Yorker walking down the street and they may think you're weird. So. <laughs> Carol, you're right on. You're right on track with that. So I, I actually like made my way to New York. So I was I went to college um, in Atlanta uh, at Emory University. I went to law school at Yale in Connecticut, and then was in D.C. for a number of years before moving to New York. And I would say, like Atlanta, you still kind of like could get away with saying hi to someone on the street; they wouldn't look at you too weird. By the time I got to D.C. or by the time I got to Connecticut, that was like totally like out of the question. And I made that mistake a couple times, and then I realized that like. I'd have to like dial it back a little bit for the Northeast. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's great. No, uh, you know, I, I want to explore that a little bit, Stephen. I mean, that's, you know, you lived in, in several tremendous cities, right? But all very different. How did you get into your career path? And tell us a little bit about that transition from going from New Orleans to school in Atlanta and then, and then Connecticut as well, and then D.C.? Yeah, so uh, my parents had a rule that when we went to college, we needed to go to college at least 500 miles away from home. Which turned out to be like a great, like a great rule because it really, you know, especially New Orleans, a very insular city. So a lot of the people who I went to high school with, you know, went to school at, you know, sort of some of the great universities in the state. And that's great. But like my parents wanted us to like have perspective. And they always said, like, we'd love for you to move back and live in New Orleans, but we want to make sure that you see other things and have other experiences. So Emory was like right at that 500 mile uh, perimeter. And I had a great experience there. I love Atlanta as a city, obviously another city with, you know, sort of a really strong African-American population. And, you know, that continued to, to kind of further great, you know, African-American institutions of higher learning. And so that continued to shape, like, my views on, you know, how you should think about your role in society. At that point, I wasn't really thinking about business. I was more on the law track. So I was a debater in high school and college. Law felt like the natural thing. All the people who I knew who were kind of a little bit older than me and, you know, also debated all went to law school. And so it just felt like I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer and had some great times at Yale, spent my summers at law firms, you know, kind of seeing what that was like. And two things kind of stuck out of me. One is, you know, I didn't think the law firm life was going to be for me. It wasn't creative enough. It didn't represent the opportunity to like, you know, really create your own experience, you know, as a, as a professional. And that was similar to what I loved about debate. So debate was like, you know, for me, intellectually stimulating because you chose what you debated about and Mm -hmm. you chose the arguments you made. And that was different than kind of like the structured classroom. And so I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of people while I was in law school who were entrepreneurs. And that was not a path that I'd been exposed to previously. And I think it's something that for a lot of African-Americans who, you know, sort of you're kind of have uh, career aspirations often they're not exposed to this idea that you can just start your own company Mm. and you can raise your own capital and Mm. you can go out and make the world like you want it to be. And, you know, frankly, a lot of white entrepreneurs are are exposed to that at very early ages. And so to me, that was sort of a new thing. But when I kind of was exposed to it, I loved it. And I loved the idea of being able to like not work for a large law firm or really work for anyone. But this idea that you could take an idea from idea to a real business uh, was something that kind of stuck with me. And so after a couple of years at my firm, I left to join a startup as the first hire of the company. And, and that was kind of put me on my path to, to entrepreneurship where I, where I still am today. You know, I, I joke around with people. I'm like, at this point, I'm pretty much unemployed uh, because I haven't worked <laughs> for someone else for so long. <laughs> you know, this, uh, Stephen, I, I want to ask you because uh, employment and I want to ask you about Exec Online. So tell us about what you're doing and, and what's happening at Exec Online today. Yeah, so... And Tech Online is my, is my second company. So I joined a company called Frontier Strategy Group at the very earliest stages, ended up uh, running that company as CEO, grew that company pretty successfully, then decided, you know, I wanted to actually start something on my own, right? So it was great to be the first hire. It was great to be the CEO, but um, I wanted to kind of be that founder and, you know, sort of take an idea and bring it to, to market. And so I spent a fair amount of time after I left Frontier, I took some time off to think about like what I wanted to do next. And that was probably the most valuable time professionally of my life in terms of just having some time for perspective. Like you kind of 
can really underestimate how much like your daily grinds can take you away from creativity and can take you away from having perspective on like where you want to take your life and your career. And I'm always a big believer that, you know, wherever your life or career ends up, you should be able to look back on it and feel like you made a series of intentional decisions that took you to that point, as opposed to like inertia kind of taking you to that place. With, With Exec Online, I found an area I was really passionate about. I was passionate about what I saw happen in a lot of large companies, which was that you had leadership levels in that in those organizations that were not very diverse. Not enough, you know, sort of black founders, not enough female founders, not enough underrepresented groups that might get hired, right, but weren't advancing to those senior levels. And I actually saw a glimpse of that for the brief time I was at my firm, right? You have a lot of early, you know, sort of black associates for a second year. By the time you look at the partnership, you're like, where did all those people go? Mm. Uh, and so at Zec Online, fundamentally, was um, I founded it to, to address that question. And, and we sort of did it by saying, you know, what if you could democratize access to the world's best business schools? What if rather than it being something that was for a few in these companies that were kind of tapped on the shoulder and said, you know, would you like to go to Stanford or would you like to have an opportunity to go to Wharton? What if you could take those experiences for the few bring them online and democratize that access so that more minorities, more women had those types of experiences. And my belief was if more people had those experiences, you would see a whole different set of people advancing their careers as a result, as opposed to companies, you know, selecting the same people year after year and creating these self-fulfilling prophecies where they kind of selected the people who ended up being the future leaders in the organization. That's awesome. And, you know, how long has the company been around at this point, Stephen? Yeah, so I founded the company in 2012. And when I first started the company, we were focused on one very specific thing, which was partnering with the world's best business schools, taking what would have been the in-person leadership development experience. So these aren't MBAs. They're not degrees. They're the like, you know, one to four week experiences that companies send their leaders to. We were sort of taking those experiences and bringing them fully online. And then we're saying the companies, instead of sending one person for the same cost, you could send six or seven people gotcha. right, to our online programs with the best schools and the best faculty. And then since then, we've grown the business and expanded so that we not only work with the world's top business schools, we also offer our own programs that we develop as exec online that complement our school partner programs so that we have a a solution for every level of the leadership pyramid. So companies can kind of come to us and say, we want you to help develop our leaders from the first day they become a manager to when they might move into the C-suite of their organizations. Gotcha. Okay, cool. And, you know, with with all the racial unrest, let's just call it, in in our country this year, lots of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Across the board, a lot of organizations talking about it. Curious to know, have you seen a shift in your business in terms of inbounds, companies reaching out to you. Curious to know if the conversations today with corporations are different than say 12, 15, 18 months ago. Very different. So, you know, we've seen that play out. So generally in our industry, we're fortunate to be in a space that is, you know, very fast growing, which is kind of this online leadership development space. So our business generally is really kind of uh, taken off as a result of COVID 
and also, you know, sort of the murder of George Floyd and, and, and sort of an increased corporate commitment to access and to inclusion. Specifically within the world of inclusion, we've seen even more growth. So if you look at our, you know, sort of inclusion offerings, they're up like 500% year over year in terms of, you know, how companies are investing. And what's interesting is the growth rate's even faster amongst senior leaders. So rather than organizations saying, oh, this, you know, I'm a, I'm the CEO, like this is for other people. What we're seeing are actually CEOs take our programs as well so that they can open their eyes and better lead their organizations around these issues of inclusion and diversity. So we are seeing much more commitment than we've ever seen before. Obviously, the question is the sustainability of that commitment. And so a lot of our focus is on how do we help organizations understand how to do this sustainably, as opposed to let me just make a, a, you know, sort of a flashy investment one time and then move on to something else. Yeah. And and I'm sure based on the level of engagement, based on how you qualify corporations, I'm sure you see that and you can weed those companies out that aren't serious about it. So another question for you, curious to understand from you, what do you love about being a founder and a CEO? Yeah. So I, I think there are really two things that I really love. One is the ability to uh, kind of choose an area where you want to have an impact mm-hmm. and feel like you've got the freedom to pursue a path that allows you to have that impact, right? Without, you know, kind of you know, thinking about what does your boss think or what do these other people think? And it's not to say you don't have stakeholders. I have investors, I have, a, you know, like sort of stakeholders. But ultimately, from the very early days of the company, one of the things that was important to me was control over the business and the ability to say, like, this is what Execon Line stands for. This is our mission. And this is what we're going after. And so that, that's one. And then the second thing is, I just really love leading people around a common purpose. And, you know, some people, you know, hate management and they're sort of like, you know, dealing with people's issues all the time. And, you know, this day it's this, another day it's that. I find people fascinating, right? And so, you know, behind every employee is someone's life, right? They've got a family. They've got goals, they've got aspirations, they've got a whole story. And if you think about like the role that their job plays in that, it plays a huge role, yeah, right, in, in their lives. And so as leaders, you know, one of the things that I hope more leaders do is understand that and recognize the obligation they have to run their organizations in a certain type of way and the responsibility that they have to their employees, right, in, in the organization. Because I, you know, I, you might take two seconds as a leader to make a decision about something, and that decision might have huge implications on someone's life, right, that you're not even thinking about. And so I take that responsibility very seriously, and it's something that I enjoy being able to be a part of so many people's lives in different ways. Yeah, you know, to that point with us all working from home these days and people managing kids at home. And I, I mean, if, if you're a leader, it, now is the time to recognize, to your point, how decisions you make impact someone else's life. And I hate to say it this way, but if, if folks can't realize that in this day and age, I don't know if they ever will. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think there is progress. But I, I also think that there, you know, sort of there's still a lot of a lot of progress to be made, let's say. But I definitely agree that, you know, the move to virtual work, seeing people's kids in the background, seeing the challenge that people are facing day to day, it's definitely create a lot more uh, empathetic leadership Mm. in organizations. And then the key will be, once again, as we've done before, how do you sustain that? 
right, as we move forward. And I do think that, like, people, like, employees are demanding that more, right, in, in terms of when they think about where they want to work, a place that does have empathetic leaders that, you know, sort of aren't just about top down, we need you to do this and execute this, but that are thinking about, you know, sort of their employees in a more holistic way. Those are the organizations that end up becoming employers of choice. Yeah. And and to that point, when I interview at, at my company, so I work for a MarTech organization called Live Intent, I head up marketing there. What I'm seeing more and more now as I interview candidates, especially kids coming out of college, is they are more, much more socially and consciously aware. And they're asking questions, not just about a company's culture, but show me what you've actually done and are doing to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and I feel that that's been an interesting shift, especially over the last 12 months or so. I think that's totally right. And I think it's a, it's a welcome trend and one that I, I do think will continue just because I, you know, I think the days of viewing a company as only, its only mission being to sort of deliver profits to shareholders, I think those days are over. And even you see a lot of, you know, leading or uh, CEOs also, you know, kind of signing on to this idea that companies have a much broader set of stakeholders than just stockholders that are looking to maximize returns. Mm -hmm. Stephen, I want to ask you about some serious moments, you know, and it's interesting, Carl, you just mentioned, you know, a whole new sort of wave of talent and people who come in with a very different understanding. And, and, and one thing that we've learned um, throughout the years of doing this is that they can learn a lot from our guests. So I want to ask you about when you had to face and handle issues of discrimination, how did you handle that? How did you face those situations, both professionally and even personally? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I, I've been fairly fortunate in that, you know, even growing up in the South, I haven't had to face a lot of like super overt situations of discrimination. I mean, sure, here and there, you know, you'll hear some, you know, ignorant person, you know, use the N-word or say that. And, you know, my view is like, you know, when you react in a certain type of way, you're giving that person power. And my view has always been to rise above that. And, you know, as long as someone's not threatening, you know, you or your loved ones to sort of take the high road, because it's very rarely, you know, particularly in, in certain places in the South, right, not going to necessarily turn out well for you if, if you kind of pursue it a different way. And it's, it's unfortunate that often as black people, we're the ones who have to take the high road, but you know, it's a reality that, that we live in. And, you know, you, you kind of see that play out now, right. In the current environment we're in. And, you know, it's, you know, sort of so unfortunate that a lot of time we, we have, you know, sort of leadership in this country that is stoking these flames of division. And I think until the murder of George Floyd, the societal expectation was that black people should essentially just accept this, right? And and be quiet about it as opposed to be vocal and really, you know, sort of, you know, uh, force society to confront some uncomfortable truths. So what I think the silver lining of a really awful situation is that it sort of brought to light something that I've very much experienced in my life, which is kind of not so much the overt racism, but the unconscious bias that permeates everything, right, that we kind of go through as professionals in our lives, right? And it's unfortunate that when I'm in a meeting, I have to think about those sorts of things. Like, how am I being perceived as a Black man? 
is a relevant question when mm-hmm. I'm raising capital. Why? Because I've raised capital now since 2007, and I've met three black venture partners in mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Right? My investors, great group of investors, they all have CEO summits where they invite their portfolio companies to come together, you know, once a year to kind of share best practices and those sorts of things. And so, over the course of a year, I go to three of those three three of those different events. Maybe I run across 150 CEOs. And if three of them are black in a year, that's a good year, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, that's the reality. Now, do I think that my investors are, have intentionally, you know, sort of invested only in white entrepreneurs? No, I don't, right? In fact, I think that, you know, if you were to talk to them, they would genuinely tell you, right, that they would love to find more minority entrepreneurs invested. But there's a reason why the numbers look like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that are the biases that we have in our society around what does a great founder look like? What does a great CEO look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, the way I sort of position it is the day that Silicon Valley is investing in 23 year old black kids with mm-hmm. hoodies on. Right. That's the day that we'll know that a lot of those unconscious biases, right, we're making progress because they invest in 23 year old white kids who have no management experience with hoodies all the time. Yep. But if you're a black founder, you're a black CEO, it's a lot more likely, what's your track record? What have you accomplished? What is our other management experience, right? We have to have a much more bulletproof case than others. And so for me, I sort of lean on something my parents told me very early on. It's like, you have to be better than, yeah. right? You can spend all your time talking about fairness if you want to, and we should be fighting for fairness. We should be fighting for quality. But in the meantime, recognize that if you want to get where your white peers have been, you better bring even more to the table because you're going to be held to a higher standard. That's tremendous. Stephen, thank you for sharing your tremendous insights and your personal experiences. That's, that's huge. Thank you. Thanks for asking the question. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned your parents and we like to talk about influential figures in, in, in your life. Did you have mentors or did you have folks professionally and personally that sort of helped guide you into Stephen Bailey today? Yeah. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm a big believer in like, I like to, t- so I love biographies and I kind of take a little bit from the different biographies that I've read. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to have parents that were really like my mentors, right? Like, they were the people I turned to and said, like, you know, when I think about my values, when I think about like my life trajectory, my parents are doctors. So I, I went a totally different path, mm-hmm. but like they're always in the back of my head around like when I'm like, confronting a difficult situation, like I'm approaching something that's challenging. You know, I think about like, what did I learn from my, my mom or my dad that I can apply to this particular situation? But to me, I love biographies because I love the stories of how people overcome struggle of all types, right? And like one of the things you learn when you read biographies of like great figures is like struggle is the price of greatness. There is no alternative path. You'll never get to greatness by everything just going like super smoothly. There'll always be some moment. There'll always be some time when you got to deal with a really challenging situation. And and that kind of context just helps you with a year like 2020. Right. Because you go a step back and say, like, it kind of came out of nowhere, but there was no way we were going to go through life. Right. If you live, if you're fortunate enough to live long enough and not face adversity. So we might as well lean into the adversity, figure out how we're going to get out ahead of it 
but there was no way, right? You don't know what year it's going to be, but at the end of the day, one of these years is going to be a year like 2020. So let's just get it out of the way. <laughs> so true. True. What are you reading these days, Stephen? What's what's on your, uh, your bookshelf these days? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of just one thing I do every morning, I set aside time for reading when I wake up. So whatever time I need to wake up, I wake up 30 minutes early. I make sure I make it through at least the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Those are kind of just two staples. I spend a lot of time on, I've really been interested in brain science a lot lately. Mm. Um, I feel like when you can really understand how people process information and you understand how people make decisions, in some ways, that's like the next level of leadership. Because, it, I mean, literally, there are predictable patterns around how humans assess particular situations. Obviously, you guys are in marketing, you understand that more than anyone, right? <laughs> and so that's been sort of eye opening for me. So, one book that I really recommend is Thinking Fast and Slow, which is Daniel Kahneman's book mm. on, you know, kind of how the brain processes different types of decisions. So the short synopsis is you have two brain systems. You have like the really kind of like the brain system that just processes like everyday things really rapidly that are like kind of surface level thinking. So you're kind of like walking across the street, you see a car, you stop right? That's kind of like system one. And then you've got like system two, which are like deep, this deep process, right? And so like unconscious biases, for example, sit in system one. Mm. Mm. And what you're really trying to do is like help someone understand, oh, I have an unconscious bias. I'm using my system one brain. Let me shift that to deep thinking so that I don't make an off the cuff decision. Mm right? That would have been just the same reaction as I would have if I saw a car and I stopped. Gotcha. Right? And so those are the types of things I'm focused on right now. And given what we do in learning, it is very relevant to kind of how we see ourselves playing a role and kind of breaking some of those things down. Gotcha. Gotcha. What advice would you give to that individual that's out there listening right now that's thinking of, of starting their own business? You know, I would... The first thing I would say is, you know, you only live once. So if it's something that you're excited about, that you're passionate about, give it a try. The worst thing that can happen is that you could fail. But to me, what's always been worse than failing, and that's always a possibility anytime you start a business, is looking back and wondering what if. Right. So that, that's one piece of advice. You know, the second piece of advice, um, and this would be particularly for Black founders, is don't let anyone else define you know, if you think about starting a business, I see so much advice like, you know, oh, you know, you should think about starting this consumer business, right? That then it might, that might be totally your interest. Like if you want to start a business that's, you know, about marketing to the African-American community, there's a lot of need for that. You should do that. But investors will tend to push you in that direction. You're a black guy. You know what you should do? You should start a business for black people, right? And that's great. But like, if that's not what you want to do, if you're saying, Actually, I want to start an enterprise software business. Then pursue that right. and follow that passion as opposed to getting pushed early in directions that other founders in your similar position would not be pushed in if they weren't black. Love it. Love it. Follow, follow your passion. Follow your passion. There you go. All right. So fun question. I like asking every guest that we have on the podcast Give us the top three apps that you use on your phone and you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. <laughs> uh, so for me, and I'm actually cheating right now, I'm going to look at my phone. Um, <laughs> one is Slack. 
All right. We're a big Slack company. I do, I'm not going to use these, but New York Times and Wall Street Journal would definitely be there because those wraps on my phone, but I already told you about that. I'm always checking, well, this time of year, my fantasy football app, for All sure. Right. All right. And I'll give you one more. I am always on LinkedIn. Okay. All right. So those are the ones that get, get play every day. Nice. Well, thanks for sharing those with us. I think we're all guilty of most of those too, probably. <laughs> um, you know, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. Thanks for joining us. Lots of our listeners like to stay in touch. What are some good ways that they can uh, reach out to you or, or follow you? Yeah. So the number one way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. Also visit our website, uh, execonline.com. I'll learn more about what we do and the impact that we're making. Excellent. Well, all you listeners, thanks for joining us again. And you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thanks.